0: Chapter 1 of The Silent Battle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Oliva The Silent Battle by George Gibbs Chapter 1 Lost Gallatin wearily lowered the creel from his shoulders and dropped it by his rod at the foot of a tree. He knew that he was lost, had known it, in fact, for an hour or more, but with the certainty that there was no way out until morning, perhaps not even then, came a feeling of relief, and with the creel he dropped the mental burden which for the last hour had been plaguing him first with fear, and then more recently with a kind of ironical amusement. What did it matter after all? He realized that for 28 years he had made a mess of most of the things he had attempted, and that if he ever got back to civilization, he would probably go diligently on the way he had begun. There was time enough to think about that tomorrow. At present he was so tired that all he wanted was a place to throw his weary limbs. He had penetrated miles into the wilderness, he knew. But in what direction the nearest settlement lay, he hadn't the vaguest notion. To the southward, probably, since his guide had borne him steadily northward for more than two weeks. That blessed guide... With the omniscience of the inexperienced, Gallatin had left Joe Qigone alone at camp after breakfast, with a general and hazy notion of whipping unfinished trout pools. He had disregarded his mentor's warning to keep his eye on the sun and bear to his left hand, and in the joy of the game had lost all sense of time and direction. He realized now, from his aching legs, that he had walked many miles farther than he had wanted to walk, and that, at the last, the fish in his creel had grown perceptibly heavier. The six weeks at Mulready's had hardened him for the work, but never, even at White Meadows, had his muscles ached as they did now. He was hungry, too, ravenously hungry and a breeze which roamed beneath the pines advised him that it was time to make a fire. It was a wonderful hunger that he had, a healthful, beast-like hunger, not the gnawing fever, for that seemed to have left him, but a craving for Joe's biscuits and bacon, at which he had at first turned up his pampered aristocratic nose which now almost amounted to an obsession. Good old Joe, Gallatin remembered how, during the first week of their pilgrimage, he had lain like the sluggard that he was, against the bole of a tree, weary of the ache within, and rebellious against the conditions which had sent him forth, cursing in his heart at the old Indian for his taciturnity, while he watched the skillful brown fingers moving unceasingly at the evening task. Later he had begun to learn with delight of his own growing capabilities, and as the habit of analysis fell upon him, to understand the dignity of the vast silences of which the man was a part. Not that Gallatin himself was undignified in the worldly way, for he had lived as his father and his father's fathers before him had lived, deeply imbued with the traditions of his class, which meant large virtues, civic pride, high business integrity, social punctilio, and the only gentlemanly vice the gallatin blood had ever been heir to. But a new idea of nobility had come to him in the woods, A new idea of life itself, which his conquest of his own energy had made possible. The deep aisles of the woods had spoken the message, the spell of the silent places, the mystery of the eternal, which hung on every lichened rock, which sang in every wind that swayed the boughs above. Hi-ho! This was no time for moralizing— There was a fire to light, a shelter of some sort to build, and a bed to make. Gallatin got up wearily, stretching his tired muscles and cast about in search of a spot for his camp. He found two young trees on a high piece of ground within a stone's throw of the stream, which would serve as supports for a roof of boughs, and was in the act of gathering the wood for his fire— when he caught the crackling of a dry twig in the bushes at some distance away. Three weeks ago, perhaps, he would not have heard or noticed, but his ear, now trained to the accustomed sounds, gave warning that a living thing, a deer or a black bear, perhaps, was moving in the undergrowth. He put his armful of wood down and hid himself behind a tree, drawing, meanwhile, an automatic, the only weapon he possessed from his hip pocket. He had enough of woodcraft to know that no beast of the woods, unless in full flight, would come down against the wind toward a human being, making such a racket as this. The crackling grew louder, and the rapid swish of feet in the dry leaves was plainly audible, his eye now caught the movement of branches, and in a moment he made out the dim bulk of a figure moving directly toward him. He had even raised the hand which held his colt and was in the act of aiming it when from the shelter of the moosewood there emerged a girl. She wore a blue flannel blouse, a short skirt, and long leather gaiters, and over one hip hung a creel like his own. Her dress was smart and sportsmanlike, but her hat was gone, her hair had burst its confines, and hung in a pitiful confusion about her shoulders. She suggested to him the thought of syrinx pursued by the satyrs, for her cheeks were flushed with the speed of her flight, and her eyes were wide with fear. Comely and frightened dryads who order their clothes from Fifth Avenue are not found every day in the heart of the Canadian wilderness, and Gallatin half expected that if he stepped forward like Pan to test her tangibility, she would vanish into empty air. Indeed, such a metamorphosis was about to take place, for as he emerged from behind his tree... The girl turned one terrified look in his direction and disappeared in the bushes. For a brief moment, Gallatin paused. He had had visions before, and the thought came into his mind that this was one like the others, born of his overtaxed strength and the rigors of the day. But as he gazed at the spot where the dryad had stood, branches of young trees swayed, showing the direction in which she was passing. And the sounds in the crackling underbrush, ever diminishing, assured him that the sudden apparition was no vision at all, but very delectable flesh and blood, fleeing from him in terror. He remembered then a tale that Joe Kegon had told him of a tenderfoot who, when lost in the woods, was stricken suddenly mad with fear, and ended like a frightened animal running away from the guides that had been sent for him. Fear had not come to Gallatin yet. He had acknowledged bewilderment and a vague sense of the monstrous vastness of the thing he had chosen for his summer plaything. He had been surprised when the streams began running uphill instead of down, and when the sun appeared suddenly in a new quarter of the heavens, but he had not been frightened. He was too indifferent for that. But he knew from the one brief look he had had of the eyes of the girl that the forest had mastered her, and that, like the fellow in Joe's tale... She had stampeded in fright. Hurriedly locking his colt, Gallatin plunged headlong into the bushes where the girl had disappeared. For a moment he thought he had lost her, for the tangle of underbrush was thick and the going rough, but in the rift in the bushes he saw the dark blouse again and went forward eagerly. He lost it, found it again, and then suddenly saw it no more. He stopped and leaned against a tree, listening. There were no sounds but the murmur of the rising wind and the note of a bird. He climbed over a fallen log and went on toward the slope where he had last seen her, stopping, listening, his eyes peering from one side to the other. He knew that she could not be far away, for ahead of him the brush was thinner, and the young trees offered little cover. A tiny gorge, rock-strewn but half-filled with leaves, lay before him, and it was not until he had stumbled halfway across it that he saw her, lying face downward, her head in her hands, trembling and dumb with fear. From the position in which she lay, he saw that she had caught her foot in a hidden root, and in her mad haste to escape, she knew not what, had fallen headlong. She did not move as he approached, but as he bent over her about to speak, she shuddered and bent her head more deeply in her arms, as though in expectation of a blow. I'm not going to hurt you, he said softly. At the sound of his voice she trembled again. "'But he leaned over and touched her on the shoulder. "'I'm very sorry I frightened you,' he said again. "'And then after a moment, have you lost your way?' "'She painfully freed one arm and looked up, "'then quickly buried her head again in her hands, "'her shoulders heaving convulsively, "'her slender body racked by childish sobs. "'Gallatin straightened in some confusion.' He had never, to his knowledge, been considered a bugaboo among the women of his acquaintance. But as he rubbed his chin pensively, he remembered that it was a week or more since he had had a shave, and that a stiff, dark stubble discolored his chin. His brown slouch hat was broken and dirty. His blue flannel shirt from contact with the briars was tattered and worn and he realized that he was hardly an object to inspire confidence in the heart of a frightened girl. So, with a discretion which did credit to his knowledge of her sex, he sat down on a nearby rock and waited for the storm to pass. His patience was rewarded, for in a little while her sobs were spent, and she raised her head and glanced at him. This time his appearance reassured her— for Gallatin had taken off his hat and his eyes, no longer darkly mysterious in shadow, were looking at her very kindly. I want to try and help you if I can, he was saying gently. I'm about to make a camp over here, and if you'll join me. Something in the tone of his voice and in his manner of expressing himself caused her to sit suddenly up and examine him more minutely. When she had done so, her hands made two graceful gestures, one toward her disarranged hair, and the other toward her disarranged skirt. Gallatin would have laughed at this instinctive manifestation of the eternal feminine, which even in direst woe could not altogether be forgotten, but instead he only smiled— For, after all, she looked so childishly forlorn and unhappy. "'I'm not really going to eat you, you know,' he said again, smiling. "'I—I'm glad,' she stammered with a queer little smile. "'I didn't know what you were. I'm afraid I—I've been very much frightened. "'You were lost, weren't you?' "'Yes.' She struggled to her knees and then sank back again. Well, there's really nothing to be frightened about. It's almost too late to try to find your friends tonight. But if you'll come with me, I'll do my best to make you comfortable. He had risen and offered her his hand, but when she tried to rise, she winced with pain. I... I'm afraid I can't, she said. I think I twisted my ankle. Oh, that's awkward. In concern, does it hurt you very much? I... I think it does. I can't seem to use it at all. She moved her foot and her face grew white with the pain of it. Gallatin looked around him vaguely as though in expectation that Joe Kegon or somebody else might miraculously appear to help him and then, for the first time since he had seen her, was alive again to the rigors of his own predicament. "'I'm awfully sorry,' he stammered helplessly. "'Don't you think you can stand on it?' He offered her his hand and shoulder, and she bravely tried to rise. But the effort cost her pain, and with a little cry she sank back in the leaves, her face buried in her arms.' She seemed so small, so helpless, that his heart was filled with a very genuine pity. She was not crying now, but the hand which held her moist handkerchief was so tightly clinched that her knuckles were outlined in white against the tan. He watched her for a moment in silence, his mind working rapidly. Come, he said at last, in quick cheerful notes of decision. This won't do at all. We've got to get out of here. You must take that shoe off, and then we'll get you over yonder and you can bathe it in the stream. Try and get your gaiter off, too, won't you? His peremptory accent startled her a little, but she sat up obediently while he supported her shoulders and, wincing again as she moved, at last undid her legging. Gallatin then drew his hasp-knife and carefully slit the laces of her shoe from top to bottom, succeeding in getting it safely off. "'Your ankle is swelling,' he said. "'You must bathe it at once.' She looked around helplessly. "'Where?' "'At the stream. I'm going to carry you there.' "'You couldn't. Is it far?' "'No. Only a hundred yards or so. Come along.' He bent over her to silence her protests and lifted her by the armpits. Then, while she supported herself for a moment upright, lifted her in his arms and made his way up the slope. Marvelous is the recuperative power of the muscular system. Ten minutes ago, Gallatin had been, to all intents and purposes of practical utility, at the point of exhaustion— now without heartbreaking effort he found it possible to carry a burden of one hundred and thirty pounds a considerable distance through rough timber without mishap his muscles ached no more than they had done before and the only thing he could think of then was that she was absurdly slender to weigh so much one of her arms encircled his shoulders and the fingers of one small brown hand clutched tightly at the collar of his shirt. Her eyes peered before her into the brush, and her face was almost hidden by the tangled mass of her hair. But into the pale cheek which was just visible, a gentle color was rising, which matched the rosy glow that was spreading over the heavens. "'I'm afraid I... I'm awfully heavy,' she said as he made his way around the fallen giant over which a short while ago they had both clambered. Don't you think I had better get down for a moment? Oh, no, he panted, not at all. It, it isn't far now. I'm afraid you'd hurt your foot. Does it does it pain you so much now? No, I think not, she murmured bravely. "'But I'm afraid you're dreadfully tired.' "'Not at all,' he stammered. "'We'll be there soon now.' When he came to the spot he had marked for his camp, he bore to the right, and in a moment they had reached the stream which gushed musically among the boulders, half-hidden in the underbrush. It was not until he had carefully chosen a place for her that he consented to put her on the ground.' Then, with a knee on the bank and a foot in the stream, he lowered her gently to a mossy bank within reach of the water. You're very kind, she whispered, her cheeks flaming as she looked up at him. I'm awfully sorry. Nothing of the sort, he laughed. I'd have let you carry me if you could. And then, with the hurried air of a man who has much to do, you take off your stocking and dangle your foot in the water. Wiggle your toes, if you can, and then try to rub the blood into your ankle. I'm going to build a fire and cook some fish. Are you hungry? I don't know. I think I am. Good, he said, smiling pleasantly. We'll have supper in a minute. He was turning to go when she questioned. You spoke of a camp. Is, is it near here? ''No, it isn't,'' he hesitated. ''But it soon will be. I'm afraid I don't understand,'' he laughed. ''Well, you see, the fact of the matter is, I'm lost, too. I don't think it's anything to be very much frightened about, though. I left my guide early this morning at the fork of two streams a pretty long distance from here, I've been walking hard all day. I fished up one of the streams for half of the day and then cut across through the forest where I thought I would find it again. I found a stream, but it seems it wasn't the same one, for after I had gone down it for an hour or so, I didn't seem to get anywhere. Then I plunged around, hunting, and at last had to give it up. "'Don't you think you could find it again?' "'Oh, I think so. Confidently. But not tonight. I'm afraid you'll have to put up with what I can offer you.' "'Of course I'm very grateful. But I'm sorry to be such a burden to you.' "'Oh, that's nonsense.' He turned away abruptly and made his way back up the bank." I'm right here in the trees, and I can hear you, so if I can help you, I want you to call. Thank you, she said quietly. I will. End of chapter one.